The ambush happened early that morning, just as the sun was starting to crest over the mountains. The attackers were lucky. The majority of the settlement's men were away hunting, leaving mostly women and children to tend to the day-to-day care of their homes and farms. Approaching in two lines, one from the south and the other from the north, they crept silently in the stillness of the dawn. Their weapons, mainly war clubs but with a healthy mix of rifles and revolvers, at the ready. Those in the settlement had no warning. The more unlucky among them were awakened by the cries of the first victims, only to meet their own ends in quick succession. Many tried to flee across the nearby creek, but only a handful managed to evade the guns and war clubs. In all, at least 118 men, women, and children were brutally murdered, with nearly 30 more young children carried off. The massacre was executed in a mere 30 minutes, and the attackers were already returning home before word of what had occurred spread. A murderous raid on an unsuspecting populace is nothing new in the annals of Arizona history. Indeed, it's something we've seen many times so far. But two things make this occurrence from early 1871 stand apart from the rest. First is the scale of the attack, which ended or uprooted the lives of hundreds of people in one fell swoop. And second is the role of the main players. We have seen again and again how the Apaches have preyed on Spanish, Mexican, American, and Odom settlers and travelers alike, attacking suddenly and melting back into the desert. But in this case, there is an ironic role reversal, as it would be the Americans and the Odom who would viciously fall upon a group of Apache. Apache who, just months beforehand, said all they wanted was to settle down and farm in peace. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 62, The Camp Grant Massacre. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we covered a sea change in Cochise's never-ending war against the Americans, in that his never-ending war was suddenly not so never-ending. Sure, some fumbling of the ball by the Americans at the 10-yard line meant Cochise still hadn't come in and settled at a reservation, but there was definitely optimism in the air. Fumbling the ball was nothing new for 19th century American Indian policy, as they seemed to always get 5th and 6th round draft picks to be Indian agents. But around the time when American officials were blowing the chance to bring Cochise in, President Ulysses S. Grant was trying to reform the entire game. When Grant was elected in November 1868, many were hopeful that the old general would bring the hammer down when it came to the Amerindians. He had supported the campaigns against many of the Plains tribes being prosecuted by generals such as William Tecumseh Sherman, and army officers in particular were critical of the notoriously corrupt and greedy Bureau of Indian Affairs. They referred to it as the Indian Ring, and hoped Grant would move the Bureau back to the Department of War from the Department of the Interior, where it had been since 1849. I will point out that this hope was not because they felt the Amerindians could be better served, but because such a move would create positions for officers in the much smaller post-Civil War army. 
However, many Americans were disappointed when, in his 1869 inaugural address, Grant said of his views of the Amerindians, quote, I will favor any course toward them which tends to their civilization and ultimate citizenship, end quote. Thus began what has been dubbed Grant's peace policy, which was to replace the old treaty system. Under this new policy, members of religious denominations were put in charge of handling Indian affairs, with the hope that this would lead to the Christianization of Amerindian tribes. Another goal was also to make sure adequate funding and supplies actually made it to those natives willing to live on a reservation. Part of the policy was separating the army from Indian affairs. In fact, after 1870, army officers were specifically barred from holding elected or appointed office, meaning they could never serve as Indian agents. Grant's policy also stipulated that while the army could still go after any hostile group not living on a reservation, it could not now enter or intervene on an established reservation unless specifically invited by the local Indian agent. All of this was then to be overseen by a new Board of Indian Affairs, which was authorized by Congress in April 1869 and consisted of notables from prominent religious groups and reformers. Finally, Grant appointed his old military aide and a member of the Seneca tribe, Eli S. Parker, as Indian commissioner. Incidentally, Parker is said to be the eponym for the modern town of Parker along State Route 95, just on this side of the California state line. To put it mildly, many Americans living in the West were horrified at Grant's policies, which were long on carrots, but short on the sticks they really wanted. In Arizona, Colonel George Stoneman, head of the military for the Department of Arizona, was vilified in the press when he opened up five feeding stations at Army posts to distribute supplies to the natives, which many felt were feeding the women and children while the men went off raiding and killing. As sort of a long digression, Stoneman was already incredibly unpopular and didn't really need another reason for people to hate him. He was condescending and dismissive to talk to, and hated Arizona's climate. So he had moved his headquarters into California near Los Angeles, apparently oblivious to how unpopular this was with the people living in Arizona. Stoneman was also slow, inactive, and lethargic in his policies, something that may be attributed to the fact that he saw his posting in the territory as a punishment. He was also a cost-cutter, meaning citizens watched in anger as the already thin-spread army spread out even more. He even proposed five army posts, including Fort Bowie, be closed. And when the citizens of Tucson complained loudly about him, Stoneman's response was to threaten to remove soldiers from there as well. Just as an aside to this long digression, this is actually not our first time meeting Stoneman. We ran into him years ago in 1846, during episode 21, when he marched with the Mormon battalion. He was that young lieutenant whose improvised boat sank in the shallow Gila River and he had to walk ashore. As we will see, his fortunes in Arizona will not change that much. Because, getting back to our story, Stoneman's lethargy is going to come into play at two critical junctions going forward. But first, we need to pull back and talk about one of his subordinates, First Lieutenant Royal Emerson Whitman. 
1870, Whitman had been placed in charge of Camp Grant, a spot where Aravipa Creek meets the San Pedro River, roughly 50 or so miles northeast of Tucson. The site had been occupied by the army off and on since 1860, and had been known variously as Fort Aravipa, Fort Breckenridge, and Fort Stanford before being named after General Grant in 1865. Whitman was 37 years old and had a reputation as a booze hound who would often go on three-day benders. In coming years, his penchant for being drunk and disorderly would see him court-martialed three times in a period of nine months. But Whitman was also a firm believer in Grant's peace policy objectives, which is why he took pity on a group of five Aravipa Apache women in February 1871. As I hope I have impressed upon you during our short time together, the Apache were not some monolithic force, but rather a patchwork of different family groups, bands, and tribes that sometimes recognized kinship with one another and would maybe sometimes cooperate. So, on the great flow chart that is the Apache, the Aravipa band fell under the Western Apache, one of the seven upper-level branches of the Apache as a whole. The Western Apache were also one of the four main Apache divisions living in Arizona and New Mexico, including the Navajo, Chiricahua, and Mescalero. Many of the primary sources confuse the Aravipa band with the Pinal or Coyotero Apache because the Spanish, Mexican, and Americans were really bad at distinguishing one band from another. In their native tongue, they were known as the Black Rocks people, and as the name suggests, the Aravipa traditionally lived in the area of the creek and canyon of the same name, which will also come into play for how this story unfolds. The five women who showed up on Whitman's doorstep in February 1871 were searching for a missing child, and the boy was indeed at the camp, but declined to return to the mountains with them. While their expedition was initially disappointing, the women were immediately impressed by Whitman's reception, which included gifts of rations, blankets, and tobacco. So, a week later, they returned, saying that their chief, Eskimizen, or at least that's how I'm going to try to pronounce it, wished to speak with him. Eskimizen was a Pinal Apache by birth, but had married the daughter of the head of the Aravipa band, which is how he eventually came to lead them. Short and stocky, he was known for his warrior prowess. His Apache name was Hashkabanzen, which translates to angry, men stand in a line for him. As just another aside, how cool of a name is that? He was for years a fixture at a rancheria in the San Pedro Valley, with early state historian James H. McClintock saying that the locals called him Skimmy. He referred to the chief as, quote, a precious old scoundrel, end quote. Despite the fact that he was blamed for a lot of raiding and pillaging, he was still known to come into Tucson every now and again. McClintock passes along an anecdote where Eskimizen was buying a rifle in the old Pueblo when the merchant asked him if he was going to use the gun to kill soldiers. Without missing a beat, though he is said to have spoke with a stutter, Eskimizen replied that he wouldn't use the gun to kill the soldiers. He would kill them with a club. If you'll permit me one more digression, it was actually Eskimizen who first took possession of Felix Ward, the boy whose kidnapping sparked the Bascom affair, 
before eventually selling him to the White Mountain Apache for some medicine from a shaman. When he came into Camp Grant, Eskimzin swore his people were tired of war and asked that they receive rations until they could plant some crops for themselves. Whitman agreed to this, inviting the Aravipa Apache to come live at Camp Grant, though he actually had no authority to create a reservation. On paper, at least, the Apache would be listed as prisoners of war, while Whitman dashed off a note to Stoneman in California asking the colonel to sanction his actions and give him further instructions about how to proceed. This request would be returned to him six weeks later, unopened by Stoneman, because Whitman had failed to follow proper protocol by providing a summary of its contents on the outside envelope. This is the first instant of Stoneman's inattentiveness leading toward disaster. By the time the letter was returned, there were more than 450 Apache at Camp Grant, being provided for by Whitman, who also found them work either cutting hay for the post animals or harvesting barley for local ranchers. Perhaps sensing that he was out on a limb, and that hostilities with nearby American settlers was likely, Whitman urged Eskimazin to move to Fort Apache in the White Mountains, which, you might remember from last week, was already doling out supplies to the local Apache bands there. This Eskimazin refused to do, reasoning that though they were at peace with the White Mountain Apache, they hadn't lived with them, and their land was not the Aravipa's land. The chief did ask that his people be able to move about five miles east of the camp to a traditional spot in a canyon along Aravipa Creek that the Apaches called Big Sycamore Stands Alone, where the farming would be better. Despite only having 50 soldiers at his post to both monitor and watch over the Apache, not to mention the risk of harboring the band, Whitman agreed to this plan. What Whitman didn't know is that the conflict he was fearing was already starting to take shape. Down in Tucson, no one was happy about the presence of Apache at Camp Grant. Though, to be fair, they weren't that particularly happy about the presence of Apache anywhere. Remember from last week that 1869, 1870, and 1871 were some of the bloodiest years since the Bascom Affair. Everyone had a friend, family member, or business partner who had been robbed or killed or both by the Apache. In late March 1871, a group of fed-up Tucson citizens came together to form what they called the Committee of Public Safety. As we learned from multiple instances across history, most notably the French Revolution, nothing good usually comes from a group using that name. At the committee's head was none other than William S. Owry, the old Pueblo's first mayor, who was affectionately known as Uncle Billy. Aury was put at the head of a volunteer militia, while also being sent as part of a small party to petition Colonel Stoneman for some help with all the Apache raiding. This delegation actually caught up with Stoneman, who was in Arizona for once near modern-day Florence, but the meeting did not go well. Not pleased with having to hear yet more complaints, Stoneman brushed the group off, saying that he was committed to Grant's peace policy and that he didn't have the men to take on all the extra work they were requesting. According to Aury's version, 
which admittedly is a little suspect, Stoneman told them Tucson had a large enough population that it should really be able to take care of itself. And if you're keeping track at home, this is the second time Stoneman's indifference and inattention set things on a collision course for disaster. Because back at home in Tucson, public opinion continued to be outraged with every new report of an Apache attack. An editorial in Tucson's Arizona Citizen newspaper thundered, quote, Will the department commander any longer permit the murderers to be fed by the supplies purchased with the people's money? End quote. Aubrey says that a group was also sent to Whitman to say that the Apache at his post were responsible for recent attacks. Whitman denied this, saying it was impossible as his men were making a count every few days. It's honestly hard to say who's right, as Whitman may have been too trusting for his own good, and Eskimosen, not exactly a peaceful man, may have had men still out doing the occasional raid. But the straw that finally broke the camel's back happened on April 10, 1871, when the Apache struck San Javier del Bac. The Odom living there sent word to Tucson, which formed a posse to chase after the marauders. This posse supposedly followed the trail almost all the way to Camp Grant before recovering the animals, thus proving that the marauders were coming from there. It didn't help matters any that around this same time, the Arizona citizen also just so happened to print Stoneman's proposal from the previous year to shutter five army posts. Fed up with what he considered the army's dereliction of duty and the Apache's free reign, Aubrey decided it was time for the militia to do something. He began taking late-night meetings in the Congress Hall Saloon with Jesus Maria Elias, the leader of Tucson's considerable Hispanic community. Elias and his family owned a ranching operation near Tubac that had taken it on the chin hard because of the Apache depredation. Two of his brothers had been killed in such raids, while a third had been seriously wounded recently. Needless to say, the two men were in a very conspiratorial mood. But, feeling that their numbers would not be enough to overtake the nearly 500 Apaches at Camp Grant, they next approached Francisco Galerita, the head of the Tohono Odom at San Javier del Bac. Always up to whap the Apache back for all their raiding, Galerita agreed to bring who he could. So, on the morning of April 28, 1871, men began to discreetly leave Tucson so as not to arouse suspicion. They rendezvoused at Rilito, the Little River, that is today on the east side of town, but at the time was eight miles outside the old Pueblo. Here they were joined by Galerita and his Odom, who made up the bulk of their forces. More wagons arrived with donated sharps, rifles, and ammunition for the expedition. The final count was 146 men in all, 96 Odom, 44 Hispanics, but only 6 Americans. This last bit was an embarrassment to Aubrey, who had more than 80 men who had joined his militia and promised to fight when called upon. Elias, who was elected the expedition's leader, is said to have wryly remarked to Aubrey, Don Guillermo, your countrymen are grand on resoluting and speechifying, but when it comes to action, they show up exceedingly thin. After dispatching two men to watch the road between Tucson and Camp Grant and warn any Americans traveling that direction for the next couple of days, 
the group moved out. Mostly traveling at night to avoid giving away their position and intentions to the army, the vigilante force moved along lesser-traveled routes. On the morning of April 30th, they were in place near where Eskimizen had relocated his people. Most of the men were away from the settlement hunting, though some were undoubtedly also away raiding. Because of the promise of protection from Camp Grant, the Apache had only posted two guards, an old man and woman. Distracted by a game of cards, both were dead before they realized what was happening. The attackers then formed two lines, with the Hispanic volunteers coming in from the south, while the Americans and the Odom came from the north. The Odom war clubs were particularly efficient, killing most before they even had the chance to wake up. But eventually the barking of dogs and cries from the young children being taken captive sent the rest of the camp into a panic. Several, including Eskimizen himself, tried to flee by running through the creek to hide in the dark crevices in the canyon walls. Carrying his two-year-old daughter in his arms, he made it, but was separated from his two wives and five other children, all of whom were cut down where they stood. We know that several were also shot down as they tried to scale the canyon walls, while one account afterwards says that a couple of the women were raped before ultimately being killed. The whole attack took about half an hour. The numbers seemed to fluctuate with the source, but in the end, at least 118 Apache lay dead, all but eight of them, women and children. Aury would write triumphantly that not a single attacker had been hurt, and, quote, By eight o'clock, our tired troops were resting and breakfasting on the San Pedro, a few miles above the post, in full satisfaction of a work well done, end quote. Whitman was also eating breakfast when he received word of the attack. Writers from Tucson found him to relay that a large contingent of men were missing from the town and might be on their way to attack the Apache. The lieutenant instantly dispatched two interpreters to warn Eskimizen and his people, but these arrived only to find the bloody aftermath. In the following days, the handful of survivors would slowly be found, with accounts saying they were, quote, so changed in 48 hours as to be hardly recognizable, end quote. Eskimizen, bloodied but alive, met with Whitman. He said he didn't blame the lieutenant for what had happened, but he was still deeply scarred by the experience. Incredibly, though, he convinced most of his people to stay at Camp Grant, and additional soldiers were ordered to the post. When Whitman's report of the incident hit the newspapers in the East, it caused pure outrage. As part of the fallout, Colonel Stoneman, whose sluggishness and dismissiveness had contributed to this attack, was removed from his posting on June 4, 1871. He would also leave the army around this point, and would eventually move to California, where he would serve a single term as governor in the 1880s. President Grant was especially appalled by the massacre, writing to Governor Anson P.K. Saffer to inform him that if the perpetrators were not brought to trial, and soon, he would put the whole territory under martial law. With that kind of pressure, the U.S. District Attorney was eventually able to bring charges against more than 100 people. However, the trial would only last five days, with the jury deliberating for just 19 minutes. Unsurprisingly, the verdict came back as not guilty. As state historian Marshall Trimble sagely put it, no jury in the Arizona Territory 
would find anyone guilty of killing an Apache. Having literally gotten away with murder, Aury wrote a defense of his actions in an 1885 paper to the Society of Arizona Pioneers. In it, he described the event as, quote, the killing of about 144 of the most bloodthirsty devils that ever disgraced Mother Earth, end quote. He also maligns Whitman as corrupt and making money off of the Apache he induced to stay at Camp Grant, and dismissed the outrage in the East as being the product of what he calls Indian lovers. At the end of his justification, he writes, quote, Behold now, the happy result immediately following that episode. The farmers of the San Pedro returned with their wives and babies to gather their abandoned crops. On the Senoida, Santa Cruz, and all other settlements of southern Arizona, new life springs up, confidence is restored, and industry bounds forward. In view of all these facts, I call on Arizonans to answer on their conscience, can you call the killing of the Apaches at Camp Grant on the morning of April 30th, 1871, a massacre? End quote. I don't know about the rest of you, but yes, yes I can. State historian Thomas Sheridan makes the argument that, though the body count was greater, the Camp Grant massacre was part of the endless cycle of provocation and revenge that has characterized the Southwest since the 1600s. Apache runoff livestock the Odom and the Hispanics, and later the Americans, pursue. Both sides eventually seek vengeance, starting the cycle all over again. In the words of the Joker from The Dark Knight, I think you and I are destined to do this forever. Someone else who might agree was Eskimizen. Much like Cochise, he found that trusting the Americans to not be that good of a deal. While still at the site along Aravaipa Creek in June, so just over a month from the massacre, an army patrol came upon them and, without warning or cause, fired on them, killing one of his men. After this, Skimzen swore off making peace again and decamped with his people for the Pinal Mountains. Shortly afterward, he came to visit an old friend, a rancher named Charles McKinney, who lived along the San Pedro River. They had an enjoyable evening together, with McKinney inviting the Apache leader to supper, followed by smoking and talking out on the front porch. At the end of the evening, Eskimizen arose and thanked his friend for the hospitality. He then pulled his revolver and shot McKinney dead at point-blank range. He would tell his people he did it to teach them an important lesson. Friendship between them and the white men was impossible. Anyone can kill an enemy, he would sadly remark, but it takes a strong man to kill a friend. On that depressing note, we are going to leave off this week. But join me next week as we turn our attention back to politics as something of a palate cleanser before starting our next course of the seemingly never-ending buffet that is the Apache Wars. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.